Okay, we are finishing up the good news of the kingdom. And if you're following in the outline, we have come to page 35, and I think we completed section number 4. We're looking at the different, I don't like to use the word qualifications, but who's going to enter the kingdom of God? This is a question people often ask. Who's going there? And the Bible gives answers. Uh, They're pretty clear answers, too, and we've looked at four of them. Those who have been born again, born of water, born of the Spirit, Jesus said, will enter the kingdom. We looked at the importance of forgiveness, forgiving and receiving forgiveness, absolute necessity to inherit or enter the kingdom. Uh, We saw the importance of childlike humility. You must become like a little child to enter the kingdom. And we finished last time looking at blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's pick it up at point number five here. Those who are rich in faith will inherit the kingdom. James chapter 2 and verse 5 reads, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world. Now this is somewhat related to the previous point, but also different. Because point four talks about being poor in spirit, not necessarily poor literally or physically, but having that sense that I am bankrupt inside. I need God. Without God, I can't do anything. This seems to put more emphasis on the literal poor, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? You know, if you go over these different points, one thing becomes more and more clear. There are going to be a lot of surprises on the final day. (laughs) A lot of the ones we thought were going aren't, and a lot of the ones that we thought were the least likely to go are the ones that God chooses. And that concept of being poor in the eyes of the world, it it kind of includes the whole concept of they were despised, they were looked down on, these weren't great people, they weren't rich, powerful people. Um, They were the ones that kind of go unnoticed. But God noticed their faith. And, you know, we've done enough Bible studies on the importance of faith, I think, to understand God wants us to be rich in faith. May God build up our faith, encourage us in faith, help us to walk by faith, not by sight, fight the good fight of faith. Uh, So many expressions you find in the New Testament in relation to faith. It's not a passive thing. We have to fight for it. When Paul said, I have finished my race, I have fought the fight, and I have kept my faith. This is an apostle saying, I've kept my faith. Well, I mean, sure, Paul has faith. I mean, he wrote half the New Testament, and half of that, he's talking about the importance of faith. Why did he say, I've kept my faith? Well, there were all kinds of things trying to take his faith away. And there are powerful forces that want to suck faith out of our life, want to discourage us, and make us not believe in God, and think, you know, he's left me, he's forsaken me, he's not going to do what he promised. So we got to fight. We've got to fight to stay in that faith mode. And then point six, I actually preached on. Uh, I have literally lost track of time. I don't know when it was. A couple weeks ago, 
we were in Florida for what five days, and it literally seemed like two months. I, I'm I'm being serious. We were gone, and I've had that experience a few times in my Christian life. But I mean, we were in eternity. We really lost touch with Earth and time, and uh, I'm still having trouble getting used to the Earth time realm again. But let's go over a, a few of these things for those that weren't here. The kingdom of God is for those who aggressively seek the kingdom first. Let me repeat that. The kingdom of God is reserved for those who aggressively seek the kingdom, not second, not third, certainly not last, but they seek first the kingdom. This is one of the first scriptures that God really engraved on my heart. He didn't just speak it. This was something that, I mean, God engraved into my very being. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. And in the context, he's talking about all the stuff we seek for. Food, clothing, jobs, comfort, sustenance. All that comes second after seeking first for his kingdom. Now, on to the next passage here. Very critical piece of Scripture. Matthew eleven eleven to 12. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Now, without belaboring the point, we've talked about this in the past, John the Baptist is pretty much bringing the old covenant dispensation to a close. His whole ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus. And Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, is called the messenger of the new covenant. Not only is he a messenger, he is the new covenant. So, through Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he ushered in the new covenant, which is really synonymous with the kingdom of God. So on the day of Pentecost, the kingdom of God came. Jesus is telling us here, the least in this new covenant dispensation of grace, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist, who was the greatest. These are his words, not mine. He was the greatest of all the men and women who lived up until that time. So what an amazing privilege is being afforded us in the new covenant. Something John the Baptist, Isaiah, and all the other prophets, they looked forward to. They never got to taste it or experience it like we have. So Jesus says, because so much more is being offered to us now, we need to be violent and take hold of the kingdom with force. Note those words again. Forceful men lay hold of it. And in the New American Standard and King James, it reads a little differently. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. That word in the Greek means to force through vital activity, to crowd, to press into. It's, it's, a, it's an action word. You can't possibly just say, oh, well... Maybe the kingdom will come to me one day. It can't mean that. This is forceful. That's why I like the King James. Violent. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men. 
It's a, just a different form of the same word. Someone who's a forcer, energetic, violent. So violent men take it by force. And you may even remember this Greek word, harpazo, because it's the word Paul uses in reference to the rapture. This is when Jesus is going to snatch us up into the air. Again, it's a violent action. He's going to catch us up, rapture us up from earth right up into the heavens. Well, that's how we need to be now in seizing the kingdom. In Luke's gospel, the same passage makes use of the same Greek word. And there it's translated presses or forces his way into the kingdom. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is (sighs) casually sort of floating in, hoping they make it. No. If we're hearing the kingdom of God message, there must be this kind of a violent response. I'm going to force my way into it. And we looked at some examples uh, last Sunday or whenever it was. We're not going to look at them tonight. But isn't it ironic, every time you read through the Gospels, you find all these people that had obstacles and hindrances keeping them from Jesus. It didn't stop them. They broke through ceilings. They pressed through crowds. They climbed up in trees to get to Jesus. And God put that spirit in us where we're not going to take no for an answer. We're not going to be denied. We're going to press in till we lay hold upon Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God. I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, in... Luke's gospel, where Jesus talks about John the Baptist and everything, it reads thusly in Luke chapter 7, verse 20 to 30, uh, 28 to 30. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. So, in the context, the tax collectors are the example of those who are pressing into the kingdom. They were the least likely. The Pharisees are all standing around in their holy robes. They're going to be left out. They think they've been guaranteed a place in the kingdom, and they're out. And here are the sinners, so-called, and the tax collectors. They're responding to the gospel. They're taking baptism, they're receiving the word of God, and they're pressing in. And verse 30 says, but the Pharisees and experts in the law, I love that, experts in the law. They didn't just know about the law of God in the old covenant, they were experts. Experts in the law, and what are they doing? They're rejecting God's purpose. Just remember that experts can reject God. Being an expert doesn't mean anything. They were experts in the law. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. Why? Because they had not been baptized. That's the only difference. I'm not going to teach about baptism tonight, but think about how important baptism is in the context of this scripture. So there needs to be this kind of a zealous, you know, forceful 
violent, I'm not going to be denied, I'm not going to be left out kind of a spirit. I'm going to press in. I'm going to enter the kingdom of God no matter what. If I have to drag myself across the finish line blind and crippled and I've lost an arm and a leg, I'm still going across. So help me God. And you know God loves that spirit. And you look around you in the Christian world and see the ones that God's really using. They didn't have a cakewalk. They were up against many odds, many obstacles, many hindrances, and somehow they fought through them anyway. And God has blessed them for that determination, that grit, that perseverance. God help us to have that kind of a spirit. Okay, who else is going to enter or inherit the kingdom of God? And all these things overlap, but these are distinct statements that Jesus made about who's going to enter. Point number seven, those who know the will of God, experts who know it inside and out. Nope. Those who do the will of God. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. They weren't cursing God. They weren't calling on Satan. They're saying, Lord, Lord. But not everyone who says that will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So putting this together with the previous point, there has to be a, a zeal in our hearts to find out what God's will for our lives is and do it. That means searching the scriptures to discover his general will for all of us and then seeking God earnestly to find out what his purpose and plan for me is. Not somebody else. What is his will for me? And then do it. Those are the only ones that enter the kingdom. Those who do God's will. Now, point number eight is a biggie. That's why it has so many scriptures. Who's going to enter? Who's going to inherit the kingdom of God? Those who are righteous and live pure and godly lives. This, again, is related to point seven, doing the will of God. But let's look at some specifics here. Because as we'll see in some verses, it's easy to deceive ourselves into making a distinction between what I know religiously and how I'm living. And trust me, in almost 40 years of ministry, I've seen what Jeremiah wrote in, in Jeremiah 17. The heart is desperately wicked and it's deceitful above all things. It's amazing how we can deceive ourselves. We come to church, we clap. We lift our hands, we speak in tongues, we praise the Lord, we have tears running down our eyes, and then 20 minutes later, we're cursing, beating up people, cheating, lying. I'm not making this stuff up. I've seen it over and over and over, and I've seen it in my own life. We can't somehow think that just because I go to church and I know some religion, that that guarantees I'm going to heaven. It doesn't. Just listen to some of these passages and a lot of the parables that we studied when we looked at the parables talk about this separation between two groups. You know, God separated light from darkness. He separates sheep from goats. He separates good fish from bad fish. In the end, the kingdom is going to be made up of good fish, <laughs> not goats, not bad fish. And for instance, in that parable, of the good and bad seed, 
Jesus said, at the end of the age, all sin and evil will be weeded out of his kingdom. Any of you ever had a garden and you know what it is to weed a garden? you got to keep pulling up all the bad stuff so the good things will grow. Well, right now they're growing side by side, but there's a weeding day coming. It's the final judgment. And Jesus said, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom, pay attention to these words, everything. What's everything mean? Most everything? No. He will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and most of the people who do evil, except me, (laughs) all who do evil. Pretty clear. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who's going to be in the kingdom? The righteous. Those who live right. Those who are right. Those who are righteous. God help us to come to this place. In the parable that I mentioned, the good and the bad fish, it's the same kind of a thing. The bad fish representing the wicked. They're separated. They're thrown away. They're not included in the kingdom. Another kingdom parable, the one of the sheep and the goats. What happens to the sheep and the goats? They get separated. They get divided. And in that particular parable, listen carefully to the final word that comes forth. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. What's their inheritance? The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. But the wicked he will send into eternal fire. There's something else I like here. The kingdom is prepared for us. It's prepared for us. And in that same chapter, Jesus says, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't prepared for you and me. God has intended, God has destined you and me to inherit the kingdom. We just need to allow him to work in our lives and bring us to a place where we cooperate with His will and His Holy Spirit. The kingdom's already waiting for us. It's already prepared for us. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. Now look at this next verse. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. This this gets real clear here. People don't like this passage. This is not politically correct. It's not tolerant. It's not nice. It doesn't sound Christian. And even a lot of us have been duped by this kind of talk now. We're afraid to speak the word of God for fear of being labeled, you know, oh, he's not tolerant. He doesn't have any love. He's not a real Christian. Baloney. This is what real Christians do and say. Do you not know that God will change his mind in the end and let all the wicked inherit the kingdom? You know, I was... I was mad when I made those laws. I'm feeling better now. So everybody, come on in. I'm, I'm going to be tolerant now. Is that what it says? Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, can you please clarify that word wicked, Paul? I don't know what are you talking about. A serial killer? Well, I can agree with that. No. Notice his next words. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, 
nor homosexual offenders. Paul would definitely go to prison in our culture. That is not the way you talk in this century. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will what? Will inherit the kingdom of God. What deception has swept over the world in these final days? We have homosexual churches where these people sing about Jesus, they praise God, and they're living in homosexual immorality, and they actually think they're going to inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, Paul says. Now, that sounds pretty harsh, but look at verse 11. And that is what some of you were, past tense. Oh, they had former homosexuals in the Corinthian church. They had former adulterers, swindlers, liars, cheats, drunkards in the church. But please notice the verb is in the past tense. <laughs> that is what some of you were. Not like a lot of the modern megachurches are practicing. That's what you still are? Then come on in. We're all going to inherit the kingdom. No, it better be in the past tense. That's what some of you were. And he continues in the past tense. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, something tells me if the church would sound the trumpet a little more clearly, we would see more of these people getting saved. Instead of pampering them and tolerating them in their wickedness and deceiving them. We're not helping people by saying, you know, it's okay. You can stay a thief. You can stay an adulterer. God loves you. He does love you, but call them to repentance. Tell them there's power in the blood of Jesus. God can change your life. He can deliver you from those sinful lifestyles. He can wash you, sanctify you, justify you, so that you can inherit the kingdom of God. We had a man up in Newark, New Jersey. He, and it's, it's hard for me to even talk about this, but he was a man, and he had actually had one of these sex change operations, changed to a woman, and then God saved him. And he changed back to a man. I'm not making this up. God is powerful. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. And we heard a testimony at the thing this weekend. Similarly, amazing. Let's not limit God's power. Let's call people into the kingdom, but let's call them in the right way. Through repentance, through washing, through justification, and through sanctification in the name of Jesus Christ. Look at a companion scripture in Galatians 5. We know this well, starting at verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature, the flesh, are obvious. Some of the same things we just read in Corinthians. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Paul's pretty specific, isn't he? He gives a pretty long laundry list when he writes to these different churches. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this may not, will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
And there are some pretty heavy sins in there that hopefully most of us are not even being tempted with anymore. Drunkenness, witchcraft, some of those things. There are some other things in here, though, that float around churches all the time. Jealousy, discord, hatred, selfish ambition. My God, that runs rampant among ministers. Where are they going to end up if they're in the ministry full of selfish ambition? Paul says, forget about the kingdom. Ephesians. Maybe Paul was just having a bad day when he wrote to Corinth and Galatia. Maybe we'll see a softer side when he writes to the Ephesians. Ephesians 5.5 5, For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. No wonder later on in that same fifth chapter of Ephesians, Paul talks about the bride that Jesus purchased with his own blood that is being washed in the water of his word without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, holy and pure, waiting to be married to her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Matthew 21:43. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you He's talking to the Jewish people, and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, we may look down our noses on the Jews and say, ha, 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 we get the kingdom, you don't. Oh, no, no, not so fast. What if we don't produce its fruit? There's no kingdom for us either. Kingdom is for those who produce kingdom fruit. And a lot of these things that we've read about are the opposite of kingdom fruit. Galatians goes on to talk about Real kingdom fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, humility, self-control, all those things. And finally, in this section, 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11, I like this. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. It's not enough to be called. Many are called, few are elected. Same word, election. Many are called, few are chosen. We want to be chosen by God elected by God. How do you do that? If you do these things, you will never fall. And if you study the first chapter of Second Peter, he reiterates a lot of the same things Paul talks about. Character, building upon faith, brotherly love, a godly love, a godly life. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do you want to enter the kingdom? With a rich welcome? Or with angels with flaming swords standing there guarding the way like they did in the Garden of Eden saying, Sorry, Bubba, you're not allowed in here. I want a rich welcome. A rich welcome. And now is our time to prepare for that day. Finally, and not least, who's going to enter the kingdom? Only those who have learned to lay hold on the grace of God. Only by grace can we enter. <laughs> it's no accident that Hebrews 4 tells us God's very throne is a throne of grace. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest 
who is unable to sympathize with our strengths, our weaknesses. He knows how weak we are. I think he knows better than we do. He can sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And you've heard me point this out numerous times. When is our time of need? All the time. So where should we be living? At the throne of grace. How often do I need God's grace? Continually. Continually. Why? Because of my weaknesses. I am so weak. If left to my own devices to try to stand against all temptation. Notice it says Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. We're going to face manifold temptations, all kinds of trials, strange trials, strange situations that are beyond our ability to cope. We better run to the throne of grace and cry out for God's grace, God's mercy, and God's help in our time of need. Every step we take in this journey is one more step of grace. It's all by grace. And look again further on in Hebrews 12:28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved, let us have grace. Notice that. We're receiving a kingdom, therefore let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You and I are not going to serve God without grace. It's not going to be acceptable anyway. We may make some noise and put on a show, but we're not going to serve God acceptably. That's a key word there, acceptably. We can only do things acceptably if we do it by grace. God rejects anything else. Because if it's not grace, then I take credit for it. Then I get proud and I can boast in myself. And God will allow no boasting. No boasting. All our boasting must be in Him. It'll be, I'm weak, I'm a mess, I'm a loser, but look what God's grace did in my life. That's how Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles, but by His grace, I'm the greatest of the apostles. It's not me, it's God's grace working in me. May God fill us with grace. You know, the pastor who hosted us down in Florida this weekend, um, I know him very well. I was his pastor. Tom Dant was his pastor. Uh, he's actually a very weak man. But man, oh man, great grace is upon these people. Great grace is upon their children. I mean, it's awesome. It's awe-inspiring to see what grace is doing in their lives. And it's nothing but grace. You, you recognize this is just the grace of God. And it makes you cry. It makes you weep when you see the grace of God being poured out upon someone's life. Well, he's got grace for you and me too. All we need to do is humble ourselves and come to the throne of grace. God gives grace to the humble. What does he do with the proud? Have you seen him in football when the guy's running with the ball and he gives the stiff arm? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you're not coming near me. God gives us the stiff arm when we're proud. When we're humble, he takes us right into his arms and fills us with grace. Let's summarize this 
section and we're going to move on to the final section in this eternal study on the eternal gospel. <laughs> the kingdom of God is good news. It's good news. It sounds a little frightening. It sounds like it might be bad news for me because I want my own kingdom. And that's our whole problem. All we like sheep have gone astray. We went our own way. We want to do our own thing. That destroys us. So the good news of the kingdom is our God reigns. God has come to take control of our lives. God has come to rule in me, to establish his kingdom in my life, a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what God is calling us to. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul says, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Let's seek first the kingdom of God. Let's be those violent men and women who take the kingdom by force, who press into it violently. And let's pray as Jesus taught us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, everybody has part six, the good news of eternal life and heavenly hope. The good news is not complete if we leave this last section out. We can talk about healing, atonement, deliverance, the kingdom of God, being baptized in the Holy Spirit, having gifts and power and victory, and even living very good, righteous, holy lives down here on earth. We can have all of that, and we've still missed the main target. Like Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. We're to be pitied more than anybody. Think about that. A Christian who's been saved from sin, delivered from maybe drug addiction or alcoholism or prostitution or some terrible bondage, is still to be pitied more than the worst homeless person the worst crazy that's just out in the road somewhere if we leave this section out. Because it's all about where we're going to spend eternity, not down here. This is just a very, very short preparatory phase to get us ready for the real deal, which is eternity and eternal, eternal life. So our primary focus is always, always, always on the eternal and on the final. If you don't keep that vision, you'll get messed up in your Christian life. The psalmist almost slipped. He was looking at the prosperity of the wicked. He saw, man, these guys don't go to church. They don't read the Bible. They don't pray. They're getting promotions. They have lots of money, big houses. They're famous. They're well-liked. And maybe they're even doing a lot of, you know, good, benevolent things for society. And he started to envy the wicked. He started to look on the prosperity of the wicked and say, what's wrong with me? Here I am going to church three, four times a week, reading the Bible, fasting, praying, really trying to walk that narrow road, and all I get is beatings. God's chastening me every day, beating on me, correcting me. What's the point? He says, I almost slipped until I went into the sanctuary, till I got back into the presence of God, and then I realized their end. That's the key word, end. 
Read it for yourself later on in Psalm 73. If we miss the end, we'll get all messed up in our, in our vision, in our worldview, and everything. But if you keep the end in sight, everything else makes sense. Now, we're obviously not going to look at all these references that I've given here, but on page 41 of this section, you'll notice just from glancing at this page, there's a great emphasis in Scripture on the eternal. God is called the eternal God. Underneath are the everlasting arms. 